fitting setting, uh, fitting setting of that psalm there. We consider uh, marriage this evening, the marriage of a man and woman, the marriage of Christ and His church. Genesis two eighteen to twenty five. Let's give our full attention now to God's holy word. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And our New Testament text is Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thanks be to God for His holy word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, again, we we bow before You and ask that You give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would accomplish your good purpose by and through your word now in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our world so far away from what Eden was. We've been looking at these first two chapters of Genesis and just the breathtaking 
beauty and provision that was there in, in that early in those early days of creation. It was so abundantly good. It was flawlessly good. God's creation was brimming over with blessing for His creature, man. We saw already there's been no conflict. There's been no chaos. God has been sovereignly, by His Word and Spirit, creating everything for His own glory. And he's, he's framed the world. He's formed it and He's filled it to reflect and declare who He is and His glory. And He's formed it and filled it with a man that that man might dwell there in, in the Garden of Eden in particular and, and, have, and have fellowship, religious fellowship, communion with Himself there in the Garden Temple of Eden. And God, God filled that garden with every good thing for Adam to enjoy. And uh, He made Adam perfectly capable of keeping the commandment of the covenant and finding glorified everlasting life in Himself. God made man holy and happy, as the children's catechism puts it. It's a beautiful picture, a glorious scene we've seen so far. But there's one thing missing. You wouldn't think anything was lacking. But God looks at what He's made. And in Genesis 2.18, there's one thing that's, that's incomplete. He says that there's, there's one thing that is not good in this beautiful creation. There's no one to help Adam. There's no companion for him. No helper. No equal and complementary person to be with him. Adam needs a bride. It's not good that he doesn't have one. And so God fashions a woman like Adam, his equal, yet unlike him, complementary to him, fit to him. He, makes, he forms this, this, this bride for him and brings her to him. Adam sees her and he bursts into song when he sees her and God officiates the wedding. It's a beautiful scene. Why is it here? God is giving us the foundation for marriage. Giving us the foundation of the institution of marriage here. But again, our world is far removed from the scene here, right? We're lost and ruined by the fall, and marriage now is a far cry from what it was designed to be. Our marriages are marked by disunity and discord, where Adam's and Eve's were marked by Unity and harmony there in Genesis 2. So what does this text really have to do with us? Well, the text has two things here for us, loved ones. It, is, it shows us the foundation of marriage. shows us what marriage is designed for, what it's supposed to be, and commands us, even though we are sinners, those of us who are married, to pursue the ideal that's held up for us here in our marriages. It also does something even more important. It tells us that God Himself provides His his son, Adam, his son with a bride. And this is, this is telling us that uh, it's, of course, pointing to Christ, isn't it? The son of God, that God provides his son with a bride, that he provides his son with the church to be his bride. This tells us that our salvation is all of his grace by his sovereign power. It's real gospel hope in these verses for us. And a call here to seek unity with our heavenly husband. So what we're going to do is work through this text, looking at these things, looking at them under three, three headings. The first point tonight is this. God provides His Son with a bride. If there's one big theological point for this passage, this is it. God provides His Son with a bride. The Lord God, 
The covenant Lord, right? He's the main actor here in Genesis chapter 2. We saw in chapter 1, it's Elohim, God, mighty creator, speaking a word, and it's done. Here it's the Lord, covenant Lord of His people, stooping down and fashioning with His hands. And here He is, He creates Adam, places him in the garden, says it's not good, He's alone. God brings uh, the animals by to see if Adam can find a helper with them, or really to point out to Adam that he can't find a helper among them. Adam names the animals. He's exercising his sovereign kingship over the creation, uh, naming them, showing his authority over them. And God, is, as, as he brings the animals by, he's making a point to Adam that these are not the ones he needs to be his helper. He needs another one who's equal to him, an image bearer just like him. He needs a helper, as verse 20 says. What's a helper? Why, why this word here? Some people say it's a demeaning term, um, that, that a helper is, is, is someone who's lesser than someone else, right? And it's an assistant. It's someone who does the 10% while the other person does the 90%. Um, but that's not the biblical view of what a helper is. God is called our helper, and that would not be true of Him. Psalm 30, verse 10, O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 54, 4, Behold, God is my helper. Psalm 118, verse 7, The Lord is on my side as my helper. No demeaning helpers in the Bible. The woman is Adam's helper, and that's a glorious role. That's a great role. It's a God-given function for her that's just as valuable as Adam's God-given role of leader and head. So God makes woman. He makes her to be man's equal, his other half, his complement, This is interesting here that um, in verse 21 we get this detail about how it happens. Why do we get this detail? Right, God puts Adam in a deep sleep and then he takes one of Adam's ribs. Why a rib? Matthew Henry, um, probably familiar with his his, uh, commentaries on the Bible, he has some wonderful lines here about why God may have used a rib from Adam for Adam's bride. He says this, The woman was made of a rib, out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. God makes Adam's bride out of his side to show he's his equal and companion and helper, his friend and his beloved. So God forms the bride. Then in verse 22, brings, brings the woman to Adam. God, as it were, walks her down the aisle in this wedding ceremony here in the garden temple of Eden. And then God himself seems to officiate their marriage there in the garden. Adam sees her. She enters the scene. He sees her and he bursts into poetry. These are the first recorded words of Adam, of man, bursting into song when he sees his bride coming in. And he says, this at last, right, finally, right, none of the others that God had created were fit to be my, uh, to, to be my equal and my friend and my companion. But this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right, God, God made her literally out of Adam and now God is bringing her back to Adam. She is new, she's different, yet at the same time so much like him, his equal and fellow image bearer of God. Now, brothers and sisters, as we, as, we, as we look over this scene, the first thing we need to see here 
is the very basic structure of this story. And this, this story forms an essential part of the DNA of God's plan of redemption that we see unfold in Scripture. What's going on, as we said here, most basically, is that God is providing His Son. Adam is referred to as God's Son. He's providing His Son with a beautiful, holy, spotless bride. The Bible begins with this story of a wedding in which God does this. This is a theme we see run throughout Scripture, right? You see it uh, in, uh, in uh, for example, in Genesis. Later on, we'll see it with Abraham's son Isaac, the son of promise. God providing him with a beautiful, fit bride for, for him. We'll see God's people compared to a bride for the Lord. We'll see Psalm 45, which we sung we sang earlier, praise the beauty of God's King and call the, the, the princess to desire Him. We've got a whole book in the Bible, Song of Solomon, dedicated to, to romantic love and unfolding this as a, as a metaphor, a portrait of, of what love between a bride and groom should be as, as pointing us to Christ and His church. And finally, as we turn to the New Testament and we see Christ Himself, we see His ministry begins with a wedding in John 2. We see this, uh, the importance of this emphasized there. And then we see, of course, that the end of the whole story of Scripture, which began in Genesis 2 with a wedding, in Revelation 19, the story ends with a wedding. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. All that is being foreshadowed here in Genesis chapter 2. We know that. Because Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that this is what's going on here in Genesis 2. This is what Genesis 2 is about. Where we read Ephesians 5, and Paul commands husbands to love their wives and care for them. And, uh, and then he talks about how this is pointing to Christ. He says, uh, for this, uh, uh, Paul, Paul says, Ephesians 5.32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's what marriage is about. It's about Christ and His church. So this is how God's story in Scripture begins. His Son, His Bride, there in His holy kingdom, awaiting Sabbath rest, looking forward to eternal Sabbath rest. There's good news in that for you and me. Um, Good news in the fact that God provides the Bride for His Son. If God didn't provide the bride for the son, we wouldn't be the bride, would we? Right? We wouldn't have a place here. Right? We, we don't make ourselves the bride of Christ. We don't purify and cleanse ourselves to be the bride of Christ or call ourselves or save ourselves to be the bride of Christ. In ourselves, we're, we're spiritual adulterers running far away from Him. Right? But Genesis 2 declares to us, God is the one who provides a bride for His Son. So you, church, bride of Christ, it's by the grace of God. And that's your hope, isn't it? Right? That's, that's the hope for our perseverance and endurance in this, that He Himself will provide the bride for His Son, a pure, spotless bride. And He'll bring us to heaven. And He'll bring us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we'll be there Not because of our works and faithfulness, but because of His sovereign grace. Glorious words in the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, put this so well. 
From heaven Christ came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. This is how God's provided us to be the spotless bride of Christ. Through Christ's blood spilled for us. The Holy Spirit to sanctify us. That's the gospel message of Genesis 2, 18-25. God provides the bride. God provides you, will make you persevere, will purify you and bring you to Christ in glorious marriage at the last day. What are the imperatives? That's the indicative. That's the, here's the gospel. What do we do now with that? Two things going on. These are the next two headings uh, for, the, for the sermon. Uh, the, the first, which is our second heading, is this. Pursue unity with your spouse. Pursue unity with your spouse. This is the first thing, right? We're, we're looking at Genesis 2 here in, in, in two aspects, if you will, right? There's the earthly marriage that we're looking at. And also, we're going to look at the heavenly one. So first of all, what does this mean? It means pursue unity with your spouse. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God married Adam and Eve, made them one flesh. This is the basis of the institution of marriage. And it's also the imperative for marriage. So if you're married, the imperative is to seek unity together, to be one together, to pursue unity in every aspect of married life, every, every part of married life. This is what the one flesh relationship is. Now, loved ones, as, as an aside, something which should go without saying, but no longer can, I guess, this passage just makes it clear if you're going to pursue uh, unity in a marriage, it has to be a real marriage, which is only between a man and a woman. God only makes male and female. And uh, he, he makes male and female in his image, and he makes them, right, a man and a woman, and those are the only options for marriage, between one man and one woman. You cannot have unity in a marriage if what you have is not a marriage at all. But with that said, how are we to pursue unity here in our marriages in light of this text? Well, God says one flesh, right? That's, that's radical unity. The two become one in marriage. One flesh, of course, means physical unity, sexual unity. This is part of God's good design for marriage, and it's something we're commanded to pursue in our marriages. We are to submit ourselves to one another in pursuit of that unity, as 1 Corinthians 7, 3-4 tells us. We belong to our spouses, and they belong to us. We pursue this together in our marriages. But this is more, more is meant here than, than simply the physical aspect of a marriage relationship. God is also calling us to a complete unity in everything. Unity of mind, and unity of purpose, and unity of heart. In marriage, so in, in your marriage, you should you should strive for unity in, in how you raise your children. You should strive for unity in financial matters. You should strive to be of one mind in in, in uh, how you think about the Lord. You should pray together, worship the Lord together. We should pursue unity in, in all aspects. This would have come so naturally for Adam and Eve for however long it was there in the garden before the fall. But since sin has entered the picture, unity is antithetical 
to uh, sinful people, isn't it? Um, sin separates, most basically. Sin always brings separation. It separates God and man, and it separates a husband and wife too. Um, every marriage is a relationship now after the fall between two sinners, two people who are radically and powerfully self-centered. And so there's going to be sin, and that means there's going to be cracks all over the place of separation. The best of marriages will have them. How do we deal with this? How do we pursue unity? Well, you've got to deal with the sin that's causing the separation. We're told here in verse 25 of our text that Adam and his wife are naked and not ashamed. Right? We're, we're, we're told there Adam and his wife are innocent and sinless and pure. There's no sin and therefore no separation spoiling their relationship. And brothers and sisters, that's why the gospel is so necessary for marriage. Because if we don't have the gospel, you're going to have sin going undealt with and separation, therefore, going undealt with and cracks forming in the relationship that's supposed to be one flesh. You, you can't be uh, innocent and forgiven in marriage, cleansed of your sin in marriage without the gospel. And therefore, you can't have unity without it. This is why we said that this is the imperative, pursue unity, that follows on the indicative that God provides the bride for His Son. Right? God is the one at work in us. God is the one graciously renewing us in Christ, giving us uh, forgiveness of sins in Christ. And it's this that's our hope as we pursue unity with one another in our marriages. Pursue unity with your spouse. But as we said, there's two aspects in this passage. Pursue unity, pursue unity with your spouse, but there's another aspect, and that's our third heading. Pursue unity with your Savior. Pursue unity with your Savior. We must pursue unity with our Lord Jesus Christ. God has saved us out of His grace, not simply to save us, not just barely saving us, but He saved us to such an extent that He's actually betrothed us to Christ and made us to be the bride of, of His Son. And so this is telling us, brothers and sisters, that the Christian life, the Christian religion, is not, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not just a, a doctrinal thing and, a, and a, a set of ideas that we have or rituals we perform or practices we do, but it's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, a real Vital relationship. He is our husband. Our relationship with him is as real as our relationship with our earthly spouse, our husbands or our wives. It's a real, vital relationship. He's alive and he knows you and he cares for you. And he calls you to know him and pursue unity with him. This is the essence of our faith. It's about our communion with Jesus Christ. How do we pursue unity with Christ then? If we draw on the analogy that Paul is using here in Ephesians 5.32 from Genesis chapter 2, we can draw out what we've said about pursuing unity with our spouse and say, well, we, in a comparable way, we pursue unity with Christ. What that means, it's a whole person unity with Christ that we want to seek out. A, a unity without exceptions with our Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of it in three aspects. These, these might be helpful for us. First, pursue a unity of mind with your Savior. Pursue a unity 
of your mind with Christ, your husband. You want to align your thinking with his thinking. Philippians 2.5 says, Have the very mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We need to learn to think like Jesus thinks. Have our mind conform to his mind, uh, humble before the Father like he was, knowing God's word like he did. How do we do this? Well, we're told, Romans 12, 2, we are renewed in our minds as they're transformed according to God's will. So we learn what his will is. Reading God's word is essential here, right? Digging into his word and saying, how does my thinking need to be reshaped according to God's word? Where's my thinking wrong? Where does it need to be corrected by God's word? We should take the word and press it onto our minds until they are shaped and conformed to that mold. That'll give us the mind of Christ. That'll shape our minds to be like our husbands, the Lord Jesus. The second thing, pursue unity of affections with Christ. What does Christ love? What delights our Savior? What grieves our Savior? What, is, what does He love? Do you love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates? Has your heart been tuned to His affections? Part of an earthly marriage is to tune your heart to your spouse's heart. Right? To, 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 to align them. You get married and you're like two different instruments that are tuned to two different keys. And, and there's all kinds of dissonance there. But slowly but surely, you compromise and you learn about the other and you adapt to the other and you, you tune your heart to your spouse's heart in a, in a good earthly marriage until you're in the same key. And it's, a, and it's sweet harmony that's being played. Well, with, with Christ, right, He doesn't need to adapt to our hearts because our hearts are sinful. He's the perfect pitch, right? And we're tuning our affections to his. We tune our hearts to his. Our chief passion should align with his chief passion for the glory of God. We should be grieved when God is dishonored, when sin and suffering affects the world just like him. How do you tune your heart to Christ? Well, again, right? Go to the word of God. That's where we learn, that's where we are we are retrained. Go find His Word. Go see His heart in His Word and be, be, be conformed to that. This takes prayer as well. Pray, Lord, tune my heart to Christ's heart. Realign my affections so they line up with His and they match His. I would learn to love like the Savior loves. The third thing, pursue a unity of your will with Christ. Right? Your decision-making, your, your actions that you decide to take. To pursue unity of your will with Christ is to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It means that you choose and decide and, and, and act on things based on who Christ is. Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how we conform our wills to him by obeying his word, his commandments, practicing what he's called us to do. Now, brothers and sisters, each of these three is so vital for us in pursuing a, a unity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mind and heart and, and, and will. We, we can't have a vital relationship with Christ if, if it's all just in the mind and there's no heart and there's no will going along with it. 
you, you can't have just a heart that, that, that seems to have affections, but there's no obedience to match it, and there's no, you know, there's, there's no mind being conformed to Him as well. We need all three of these things here. So, brothers and sisters, what we're called to here is a close unity with Christ, to pursue unity with Him, to be one with Him, to be conformed to Him. So, brothers and sisters, pursue this. If you're married, pursue this with your, with your earthly spouse. It's unity. But most of all, all of us need to be pursuing this in our relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ, who our great husband came to lay down his life for us, to save us in an act of selfless, sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Christ, our Savior. We thank you that you have, by your grace, made us to be his bride. We thank you that he is such a faithful, loving, good, and wise husband for us. We pray, Lord, that we would seek unity with him, seek a close relationship with him, desire him and desire to be conformed to him. Let our hearts not wander after others, but keep us for Christ. Lord, we cast ourselves completely on your grace. In his name we pray. Amen.